0: Well, let me just say good morning to everybody. Good morning to those who are online. We're gonna be turning to Psalm 119 and uh, several, Colossians 3 and then several other verses. But let me just say about City Kids, Pastor Mindy rocked it and just did an amazing job with her speaking. But I wanna give a big, big hand to Miss Mrs. Lois Moore. She's not, she, she took a makeshift kitchen and fed those kids and us adults, it was pretty amazing. So give a big hand to her and her team. And Garrison and Jen and Tyler rocked with worship and Luke and Tiffany were amazing with science and uh, Dan and Tim were incredible on their little bikes and Dan fell over and it was, it was good. That was a pretty cool prize by the way, I was giving away those bikes. So which uh, brings me to next week, many kids were saved and next week, we have baptisms and barbecue right after this service. And want to encourage you guys to be here. And uh, it'd be great to get baptized as families, but let's do it together. Make a stand for Jesus publicly and get baptized in water. Also want you to know our kitchen is coming along, and we hope it'll be done by no later than the end of August, okay? All right, we've been in a series called how do I know? And today we're going to talk about how do I know the Bible is reliable. So what actually caused me to start this series on how do I know? Just a few weeks ago, a lady that I went to school with, uh, grew up with, um, she, she grew up going to church as well. She asked me this question, how do I know the Bible is true and reliable? What makes it more reliable compared to the books of other religions like Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Book of Burma, etc. And I said, You know, I asked the same question when I was going to Grace Harbor College and then got into Bible college. And so I gave her some of those answers. And hopefully, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be able to give you the answers that I have learned over the years of why the Bible is reliable. So let's lift up our Bibles, smartphones, iPads. Whatever you have your Bible on, and let's hold them high and make our declaration loud, all right? Say this with me This is my Bible, this is my Bible. God's, holy word. God's holy word. This book, this is, book. is alive and it's powerful. it's powerful. I read other books, but this is the only book that reads me. There are many opinions, but this is the only opinion that counts. Today, I declare by faith, I can do. All it says I can do. I can be, all it says I can be, and I can have all it says I can have. Today, I ask the Lord Jesus, the living word, to take his written word and personalize it for my life. So I can leave here changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me just say this. The real name of this book is called The Holy bible it's not just the bible which is book it's the holy book it's holy and the word holy means to be set apart that means if you're a christian this book should be set apart in your heart where you live and it should be special and priceless and you should know what the book says it shouldn't just be sitting on a shelf all right now <clears throat> every how many have ever gotten a new piece of equipment? I got a brand new, uh, it's never been used, by the way, a brand new popcorn popper in my office that has Coca Cola on it, and it's called Nostalgia Popcorn Popper. Now, I've had it for two years, and I've never popped any popcorn in it. But I got this out today to find out how to use it, and I thought all you'd have to do is plug it in, put some popcorn in, and it'd be done but that's not the case. So it gives me all these things of what to do and special things to do with it as well. I want you to know this. This is your owner's manual. Don't leave it on the shelf for two years. Get it out, start using it and owning it and you'll learn so much about life. You know, we say not only is it the Holy Bible, but the word Bible, the acronym for Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. So you should know that acronym. It's also uh, something that again should be very precious to your life. So Psalm 119, 109, read it, or 105, read it with me. All right, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So one of the reasons this book should be set aside in your life is because it is practical. This book can help you with your marriage, with your parenting, with your money, with your future, with your thinking, your decision-making, your work, your friendships, and your attitudes. Now, some of you are late sleepers, and that's why you're here. This morning, I, in the first service, I walked into the foyer, and there's this little girl sitting there, all bowled up in a little ball, and I said, how you doing? Fine. I said, you don't want to be here, do you? And she said, no, my mom made me come. And I just want to say, thank you parents for making them come because it'll work. But it'll deal with your attitudes in life as well. Now what happens is this Bible, this holy Bible, it lights up your path and it shows you where to take the next step. Last night, I was the last one to bed in our house and I turned off the light and literally it was so dark I couldn't see where I was going, so I got out my Bible, (laughs) and I turned on my light, and I needed it to just get to the stairway and walk down the stairs because my wife had a pitch black in our bedroom as well with a blindfold or whatever you call that thing over her eyes so that when I did come in, I didn't wake her up. So I thought, okay, that's fine. I can still use my light and not bother. But here's the thing. The Bible is just like the light on your iPhone. How many have ever used your iPhone to get someplace when it was dark? It's a very handy little deal. That's the way the Bible is for our lives. So we need a light that will give us hope no matter what, how, how dark it gets in this world. Colossians 3.16 says this. Read it with me. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, in these dark days, you and I should have a light and an anchor so we do not move around. As truth becomes relative and subjective, you and I need to know God's word uh, and have it dwell in our hearts so we have an anchor to keep us there. So over the next two weeks, today and next Sunday, I wanna give you seven convincing proofs that, that I've shared from over the years and I've gathered from different authors, speakers, and apologists on the subject of apologetics, which is the study of proving things, by the way. And some of the sources I've used are The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. I've listened to many sermons and talks on apologetics, some from Rick Warren, Ravi Zacharias, and Dr. Tim Keller and many others, And so here are the seven convincing proofs that I know to be true for your lives. Here's how you know the Bible is reliable. Number one, the Bible is historically accurate. Now, the word history simply means past stories, or it can mean my story. And you and I need to know the story of the Bible, how it became part of America. And just one of those stories is about a man named Benjamin Rush, Uh, He's he's one of our founding fathers. He became the father of public schools when the nation began under the Constitution. He started five universities and was a huge civil rights activist. He started the first black denomination in America. He helped train the first black physicians in America. He also uh, was the guy who founded the first Sunday school movement in America in our churches He also founded the first Bible society in America and they produced, he, his group, his organization, they produced the first mass Bible printing in America. Now, the question I would ask is, so why did he do that? Why did the Bible mean so much to this man? Here's what he said. If we can get Americans into the Bible, two things will happen. Number one, they will become Christians they will find uh, how to have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, and I'm paraphrasing this one. He said, if we can get them into the Bible, we can solve, I want you to hear this. This is a founding father. If we can get them into the Bible, we can solve most of our social problems. We will have little crime and healthy families and the rest will follow. That's amazing. So, let me just say this by the way. The Bible and prayer was taken out of schools in 1962 and 1963. We've been without the Bible and prayer in our public schools for 60 years. And what has happened? More crime, more social problems, more addictions because we've left God out of the solution. Here's what else he said. My only hope of salvation is the infinite, Transistent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's over 200 years ago. Amazing. I mean, we have such great uh, founding fathers. When you look up, Uh, What they were. So, our public institutions, we've removed the Bible, the Ten Commandments, and prayer from our public society. And yet, the very thing we need is the Ten Commandments. A lot of people will say this the Bible has good principles, but some of the stories are made up. And one of the reasons they will say that is because, and they've said this to me, some of the things in the Bible are humanly impossible. Like a man being swallowed by a whale and living in it and surviving for three days is humanly impossible. To which I will say, you're absolutely right. The Bible is full of impossible things like the virgin birth, like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know they are humanly impossible, but they are not impossible with the God we serve. All right, I love that. And I don't know if you heard this story about the little girl that had to write a research paper. She was in fifth grade and she wrote it on the book. uh, She wrote it on Jonah and the whale. And the teacher wasn't a Christian. In fact, she claimed to be an atheist. And she was a little upset that this little girl chose to write on the story of Jonah. So she said to the little girl, why did you write this and on this story? And the little girl said, because I believe it is true. To which her teacher said, Well, how do you know it's true? And she said, well, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah myself how it happened. And the teacher says, well, what if he didn't go to heaven? What if he went to hell? And the little girl says, well, then you can ask him. (laughs) Now, that is a bad joke. It's a bad pastor joke, but still very funny. That's what I say. Okay. The Bible is true and the Bible is right. Psalms 33, verse four, read this with me. For the word of the Lord is right and true. So the question we should be asking is how do you prove something is historically accurate? And let me just tell you, there's a historical accuracy standard that is used to prove if uh, things are historically true. And this is not a Christian standard. This is just a standard used by historians and what they do to prove something's historically right. All right? So I'm gonna give you those they are on your notes. Here's the first one. They they use eyewitness accounts. That means they, the whoever wrote the story, they actually saw what they wrote about. And the gospels were written by people that were actually there to see the things that they wrote about. They saw actually... What they, they were there with Jesus, saw him do what he what he did, and these guys, as they were with Jesus, and by the way, they didn't collaborate. Matthew wasn't sitting in a room on one side and Mark on the other, going, "Hey, Mark, what are you, you going to put in chapter 12?" He he didn't he didn't do that. They didn't do that. They actually wrote in different places at different times, and yet their stories come together, not word for word, but for text for text and, and uh, for topic for topic. So these guys uh, were with Jesus and they were eyewitnesses and uh, it worked. Here's the second thing. They, they use recorded and copied uh, with extreme care. So um, the historians want to make sure these were recorded right. By the way, Plato's works and many of the philosophers' works that we accept as true have never been under the scrutiny that the Bible's been under. I'll spend time on that next week. But one of the reasons I think God chose the Jewish people, the Israelites, is because uh, the the Israelites have the task to write the Bible or copy the Bible, is because when the scribes copied something, they were extremely careful, like when they copied the Torah, uh, which is the first five books of the Bible. They didn't copy those books word for word. I want you to hear this because people say, oh, the translation's been lost over the years as they've, and the meaning's been lost over the years. No, here's how they copied them. They copied them letter by letter. So when they translated uh, letter by letter, when they translated the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, when they copied those, they did it letter by letter, and they knew what the middle letter was in the entire text of those five books, and so what they would do is they would, after they were done copying them, they would go to the middle letter, and they would count this way and that way, and if the amount, uh, the, the count didn't match, they would throw it out and copy it all over again. Now, over the years, there's been a myth that every time the Bible's translated, that it's inaccurate, and they they, they say, we've got to go back to the original manuscripts, which, by the way, they have. How many have ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls uh, are the books of the Old Testament and many more over the years they've found, but the first one was found in 1948, and uh, they are the oldest manuscripts of Scripture, and they completely agree, I want you to hear this, with the modern-day translations. So when Lois and I were in Israel five years ago, we went to a museum where they had the Dead Sea Scroll of the book of Isaiah in this glass case. And the guide said, he said, I, took, I, I didn't really believe it was true. So I took my modern day translation to, into the museum, which is written in Hebrew. And he said, as I went through the whole book of Isaiah, every letter word matched with what was in my modern day Bible he said not one bit of the translation had been lost over the years that's amazing I just that's a miracle by the way and so every book every chapter every letter have been copied with extreme care here's a third proof for historical accuracy and that is archaeological confirmation That means the empires, the nations, and the people groups that the Bible talks about. uh, Archaeologists have tried to make sure that really the Bible is true. In fact, most of the time, they're wanting to discredit it. But what they found is they found sites. All the sites that actually existed in the Bible have been found. But for hundreds of years, there was one they could not find. And uh, they kept searching. They couldn't find it. And many of the historians were thinking, maybe the Bible missed it on this one. It was the Hittite Empire. There were no artifacts to be found anywhere on this nation until the early 1900s. There was an archaeological dig. And in that dig, All the artifacts of the Hittite nation were found and that was the final people group that needed to be found to prove the Bible's accuracy historically and and that it was historically accurate and recorded. So I have found that this Bible is not only true but it's right and accurate in every way. All right, come on. That's worth an applause for God. Okay, here's the second proof. The Bi- that the Bible is reliable, and that is the Bible is scientifically accurate. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how I know there is a God, how I personally believe there's a God, and, and uh, we've done it through astronomy, which is the study of planets, stars, and materials beyond our Earth's atmosphere. But the last few years especially, how many have ever heard this phrase, just trust the science. But the problem with that is that science evolves. In other words, what they knew to be true scientifically yesterday could be different today. And so some of the, and it's not their fault, it's just that we keep finding new discoveries. Also, what was true yesterday in science uh, could not, may not be true today. And an example of that is computer science. Uh, It's evolved over the last 50 years. And just so you know, when, when I was a kid, and and computers came out, they were so humongous, it was unbelievable, and so uh, the computers that got us to space in 1969, they filled rooms to be able to uh, make that work, and how many know computer science has evolved, because what was in those filling up a room can be worn on your wrists now, what filled up a room can be in your pocket now, it's just a matter of time, so computer science has evolved over the last 50 years, and uh, what used to fill up a room is now very, very small. My point is this, science evolves because of new discoveries, but truth stays the same. So God knows all truth, and there are no scientific inaccuracies with God. Look at these two verses on your notes. Psalm 148, five through six, Let every created thing give praise to the Lord. In fact, let's start over again. Read it with me. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord. For he issued his command, and they came into being. He set them in place forever and ever. His decree will never be revoked. So for a book that was written over 1,600 years, and by the way, this is not One book, it's made up of 66 books. So we'll talk more about that next week as well. So you would think there would be one scientific thing that would need to be corrected. But over all the years, they've never found one scientific inaccuracy, not one. So in fact, if you go to the Louvre in Paris, they have three and a half miles of science books that are now obsolete. I don't know about you, that's kind of mind-blowing. Okay, 1861, French Academy of Science uh, wrote 51 incontrovertible uh, scientific facts that prove the Bible is wrong. That means these facts were not open to question or dispute. But now, since 1861, all 51 have been uh, controverted. In other words, they've been disputed and proved wrong. It has been proven they were wrong, and the Bible was right all along. I just want you to know, people who think they're smart, they're not as smart as God. Now, it's not only what the Bible says about science, but also what it didn't say. So in that day, it was believed, in the day that Christopher Columbus was around, and they were getting ready to take some of these voyages and find new land, It was believed, and you can write this down in your notes, I'm going to give you some myths here. Scientific myths. They believed the earth was flat. Uh, That was believed scientifically for over 2,000 years, and that if you sailed too far, you would go off the edge. That's what they believed. You would just drop off. But Copernicus, Galileo, and Columbus, and several others theorized that the earth wasn't flat but round. But if they had just looked in the Bible 2,000 years before that in the book of Isaiah, they would have found this verse, Isaiah 40, 22. Read it with me. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. That word circle, I want you to remember this. That word circle is a Hebrew word for sphere, which is where we get the word globe. <laughs> in other words, the myth that was believed was not scientifically right. God told them all along the earth was round. Okay, it was also believed, there's another myth, the earth was to be held up. So it was being held up by someone or something. The Greeks believed that the earth sat on Atlas's shoulders, which my thought would be then what was Atlas standing on. But anyway, the Hindus believed that the earth sat on the back of an elephant who stood on a sea turtle, who stood on a serpent and moved and swerved all over the sea. Isn't it amazing how smart we are? The Egyptians believed, who we know to be to this day, were some of the most brilliant people on the face of the earth. Architecturally and uh, engineering-wise, they were amazing. But they believed the earth was held up by five pillars. Didn't know where the pillars were. Were on, but they believed those five pillars kept the earth in its place. But all they would have to, had to do was go to the oldest book of the Bible, which is the book of Job. By the way, you may not know this, but the Bible is not organized chronologically; it's organized by the type of book. So, Job is in the poetry section of your Bible. But chronologically, the story happened in the about chapter. 9 or 10 right in there of Genesis. And this is what the book of Job tells us. Job 26, 7, he says, it says he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Now, how did Job know that? It's because God came and told him so. And he wanted Job to understand. Job, if you think you're that smart, did you make the stars? Did you make the earth? Can you hold them in your hand? I can that's why he wrote it, okay? Here's another scientific myth. It was believed for thousands of years, the number of stars could be counted. So Hipparchus in 150 BC actually counted the stars. He must have laid down on a blanket and looked up and counted the stars. And he said, by the way, everybody, there's 1,022 stars in the atmosphere. So everybody believed that until 300 years later, in 150 A.D., Ptolemy actually recounted them and said, dude, you had it so wrong. (laughs) You missed four stars. There's actually 1,026. Do you really think we could, can, can you count the stars? Have you ever just looked at some of the pictures? It's unbelievable. And if they had just been willing to go to Jeremiah, 3322, this is what it says. The stars of the sky cannot be counted. In other words, they're infinite. Right. Even NASA's beginning to admit they can't count the stars. They once believed, just a number of years ago, they believed there were 200 billion stars, but now, since the Hubble telescope, it is estimated now there are over 2 trillion galaxies our God is big and there's no one big enough or smart enough to put him in our little human box alright one last myth that I can give you uh, that we can go on there was a myth medically that they believed too much blood made you sick it was believed in practice just, just a little over 200 years ago this was a practice there were four body fluids that made you sick which were yellow bile black bile, phlegm, and blood. It was believed those were bad when you were sick. So the medical doctors of the day had a practice called bloodletting. And they would cut you and try to bleed out your sickness. This is how our first president died. They, they bloodlet him four times. And he lost 40% of his blood. And he died because they literally bled him dry. There was no more blood in him to fight his sickness and that's just a couple hundred years ago. All they would have had to do was go to the Bible and look in Leviticus 17, 11. Read it with me. For the life of the blood or the body is in its blood. That's why today we don't try to bloodlet you. We give you more blood. We give you blood transfusions because there's life in the blood. And let me just take a a moment and say this with no condemnation to anybody. I want you to hear this. But this is why we are pro-life. Eight days after conception, blood is in the womb. Blood is in that fetus. So that means we want the unborn to live. And I have people say to me, that's political. That is separation of church and state. Which, by the way, there is no such thing of separation of church and state. It was put in a letter by Thomas Jefferson to his government in Virginia to tell them, don't ever get involved in trying to separate the church from our governing affairs, not the other way around. And so what happened is they took that letter and they began to use that phrase separation of church and state and made us believe a lie how do you believe a lie? by repeating something as true over and over and over again that's why you need something absolute to know the truth so it was never meant to be separation of church and state it was meant that we believe in the word of God and God says life is in the blood And by the way, uh, so when people tell me it's politically incorrect, I say, no, it's morally correct. It's morally correct to believe in life and it's morally correct to help any mom who has an unwanted pregnancy to help her find a way to have that baby and give it to a family who wants it. That's the way we should do it. And there are many people who can't have children who would love to have a baby if you're in that predicament. We're not here to condemn you. We're here to help you, all right? Okay, here's here's one other one. In the Middle Ages, they had a pandemic called the bubonic plague. And back then, they had no idea of contagion and about wearing a mask or separating yourself. They had no idea that you could transfer a disease from one person to another. But the Israelites did. And if these people who practiced medicine back then had just gone to Leviticus 13, 4, they would see what you should have done. Here's what it says. The priest will quarantine the person, the person who has leprosy, any disease, whatever it might be, for seven days. What have we been doing when you get COVID-19? You quarantine yourself for seven days. You should, if you think you have it, separate yourself and you get it, and, and not just not, it should be anything you think that's contagious, all right? So it was right there in God's word, right there to what to do. Because look at this verse, Psalms 12:6, And the words of the Lord, read it with me. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. I just want you to know, God's word is reliable and can be trusted. Okay, we're gonna stop here and next week I'll give you the next five and 25 minutes. You know why? Because we have food to eat and baptisms to do. All right, all right. So let's stand. Now as you stand, I wanna give you a verse that many of you have probably heard if you've gone to church anytime at all. Hebrews 4.12 we're going to read it in three different translations read it with me in Hebrews 4.12 in the NIV for the word of the Lord God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart then uh, in the Passion Translation For we have the living word of God, which is full of energy, uh, like a two-mouthed sword. It will even penetrate the very core of our being, where soul and spirit, bone and marrow meet. It interprets and reveals the true thoughts and secret motives of the heart. Now, from the message, read this. God means what he says. What he says goes. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it no matter what these verses in these translations are telling us God's word is alive and it's powerful and you can't escape it and no matter what goes on in your life he can see it and that's why the preaching of the word is so important because you came here today, it's not me it's the word of the Holy Spirit to your life telling you I'm here for you and I can fix everything every head bowed, every eye closed no matter how you came in here today Whatever it is it needs to be fixed. Some of you just need hope today. You need to know your God is gonna come through for you. Some of you need salvation today. You need to get right with God. Maybe you're serving God at one time, but today you're not serving God and you need to recommit your life to Christ. And if that's you, you need to know that I'm gonna come back to you in just a moment, moment and have you raise your hand. Some of you just need forgiveness. Not only forgiveness from God, but you need to forgive yourself for all the things that have gone on in your life. And I'm telling you, some of you need healing today, physically and emotionally, and God wants to do that in your life. Now, if you came in today and you say, you know what, I need to get right with God, maybe for the first time or maybe for the 10th time, it doesn't matter to me. But if that's you, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand. Right now, if that's you, raise them high, keep them high. Thank you, I see that hand there, I see this hand here. Anyone else, keep them high, So. Thank you, I see that one. Three, four four of you, I see. Okay, now that's awesome because I saw four people in the first service. That's eight people today. Come on. All right, here's what we do here. You're not alone. We're all gonna pray this prayer together. We're inviting you as you pray it. Not only are you inviting Jesus to be your savior, but you're coming into the family of God, all right? So let's all say this prayer together. Father Father God, thank you for loving me so much that you sent Jesus to die in my place. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of all my sins, all my mistakes, and all my failures. Come into my life and be my Savior, my Lord, my boss, my friend, and my King. And by your grace and by your power, I will serve you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said amen All right, now we've got a few extra minutes I'm getting done early today so if I can have altar workers come up here we're going to take some time just to worship for a moment if you gave your life to Christ you need to tell somebody and they'll give you some materials to help you get on your walk with God if you need healing if you need healing for your uh, restoration for your marriage for finances uh, for your physical body whatever it might be relationships I'm telling you God is here to put his word on your life and see you healed and given uh, a brand new start. So let's worship and let's get some prayer.